My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift. I'm glad you're here. The message tonight will be streamed for our Sunday morning Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching Sunday morning, glad you're, you're with us. And it will also be streamed on our podcast next week. So if you're listening on our podcast, I want to say uh, thank you for joining us too. We're in a series called Meet Jesus. We've got two weeks to go this week and next week. It's a series called Meet Jesus. And what we've done over the past few weeks is we've just kind of given Jesus a second look. And we're kind of looking at him through all kinds of angles. And we're, we're coming from different ways and seeing some of the various things that Jesus has done and how he's been influential in the lives of people in the Gospels. And tonight is uh, no less inspiring to me, at least anyway. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4 in just a minute. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But Mark chapter 4, our text is also going to be on the notes if you want to, if you want to look there. I love, I have, a, I have a confession to make, I love the first sentences of books. It's kind of a little thing with me. When I'm in a bookstore, I have to open up books to read the first sentence. I don't know why. I, I, don't, I don't consider it a sickness or an illness but I really like doing it. And I don't, whether I buy the books or not, I just kind of, I like the first sentence of a book because the first sentence of a book is an art. It's a marriage of words kind of put together for short attention spans like ours, right? And that first sentence of a book has got to be really great. It's got to be really incredible because it has to make you want to read the second sentence, right? That's why the first sentence is so good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some notable First sentences of some famous books. I've read all these books, by the way, and these are some of my favorite first lines, first sentences. The first one is from a book called The Stranger by Albert Camus. I don't know if you've ever read it before, but here it is. Here's the first sentence of this novel. Mother died today or maybe yesterday. I can't remember. Yeah, kind of intriguing. Kind of want to read some more. Or how about this one from... George Orwell's book, 1984. Some of you have probably read this one. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking. Do you remember what they were striking? 13. Clocks were striking 13, 1984. Here's Fahrenheit 451 from Ray Bradbury. You probably, you've probably read this book. If you've not, it's a good one to read. Here's the first sentence. It was a pleasure to burn. I'm not going to tell you about the plot if you've never read it. But it gets you there. This is from Kurt Vonnegut's book, Slaughterhouse-Five. All of this happened more or less. More or less. I love that one. And maybe my, fa my favorite first sentence of any book is from, and I've actually referenced this before in a message. It's from C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I, I absolutely love the first sentence of this book. Listen to this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. Isn't that the greatest first sentence of any book ever? All of a sudden you want to know about Eustace Scrub, little boy who turned into a dragon in the middle of the book. I love first sentences. I'm going to share with you the first sentence of the Gospel of Mark because I think it's incredible. Here it is. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read it together. Let me hear you. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing first sentence? I mean, just take it by itself. No, 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 don't, don't consider other books for me. Just think about that as a first sentence. Let me tell you why it's amazing. It's actually incredibly holy and sacred and interesting. 
Mark uses a word in this sentence. It's the word gospel. And those of us who have been raised in the faith, we know this word. We've said it a million times. We don't even blink an eye at this word. But that word was really, really special when Mark used it. Let me tell you why. The word gospel was actually a military word. Actually a military word. Gospel, you know what it means? Remember this? It means the good news. The word gospel, the good news, was brought by heralds in ancient Greece and Rome to neighboring battlefields in a time of war, signaling to soldiers in other places that they could stop fighting because the war was over. No text messaging, right? No phone calls. They brought the good news that the war had ended. These heralds literally brought good news that soldiers could finally lay down their weapons. So Mark took this word gospel and he attached Jesus' name to this word. A crucified Jewish rabbi, a small bit player in Judea, brought the gospel. Think about this for a minute. This guy was killed as an enemy of state. He was killed as a traitor. Jesus was. But his life, his story, is the good news. It's the gospel. Because, because of Jesus, there, there is no more reason to fight. Your struggle is over. No longer do you need to earn a place in God's kingdom. You're already in it. Do you see why this is an incredible first sentence? And in this first sentence, there's a tremendous amount of intrigue here. And it, it invites us immediately into this incredible story. Let me tell you why. Mark was the first gospel chronologically written of the four. It was the first one. There was not a gospel story written before Mark decided to write one. First one ever. Most people think that his book was written about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. There's actually a scholar right now, though, that believes that it could have been written as early as three or four years after the resurrection. And it's also the shortest gospel of all the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's got these small, bulleted stories. I've, I've called it the Twitter gospel because they're just little compact sections of goodness. And, and these stories make you want to know a little more. But really... They end abruptly. When you read through them, you're like, well, is there more to this story? They end abruptly. And Mark immediately ushers you into something else just right after the other. And each one of these little stories inside the gospel that Mark wrote is a validation of the gospel of Jesus. It is the good news. And what Mark does, because he's a tremendous writer, he keeps this opening sentence suspense alive throughout his book. Because this gospel... This story of the end of a war carries through the ending of this book. And every story serves to support Mark's thesis that this truly is the good news of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. So when you read Mark, if you read it tonight or whenever, and you read through the first four chapters, because we're going to be in Mark 4, you see Jesus' healing, and you see his traveling, and you see his disputes with religious leaders, and even his own family, every one of those stories, you are hearing the gospel in every one of those stories. You are hearing, you're reading good news. 
And so that gets us to the story tonight in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We hear the gospel. Check out this line, the beginning line of this story. Let us go across to the other side. Let us go across to the other side. When I've read Mark, that little sentence just kind of pops off the page for me. Always has. I'm, I've always been incredibly intrigued by that statement. And, it, and it's not that any other statement made by Jesus is less intriguing than this one. But, but anything recorded in the shortest gospel, to me, carries a lot of weight. Every phrase matters. Every, every story brings with it not only the, the surface tension, but, but something else found underneath it. So there is gospel... In this statement, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and there is gospel in the story that this statement is going to tell. Let's read this together. Mark chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Verse 39, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. What an amazing story. We're going to talk about that for the rest of our time. Let's kind of pull out from this story for a minute. I want to kind of show you where this story is in Mark. I think this is important. So, in the broader context of this story that Mark wrote, this, this particular passage here, Mark 4, chapter 4, verses 35 through, through 41, is the first of three miracles in an even bigger picture of what some scholars call a double miracle cycle. So we're kind of pulled out twice here. Let me explain what that means. So Mark included... In his gospel, the following. Two exorcisms, two different rescues from sea, and two miraculous feedings in the wilderness. I want you to look at that. So these all, thing, all these things appear twice. Two exorcisms, two different rescues from sea, and two miraculous feedings in the wilderness. So thus far, if you started reading in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and you read all the way to our text tonight from Mark, chapter 4, verse 35, you have already found the first exorcism. You've already seen that one. It's actually in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, following. That's where that story is. So this story in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, is the first rescue from sea. Mark's, Mark's a genius at writing with repetitive patterns. It's He's writing this so people do not forget these critical stories. He's going he's gonna to put them in there two times. There could have been more than that. We're not really sure, but at least he selected two of each so that when you finish this gospel, you're going to hear something. You're going to hear this pattern. 
But there's even something more here. Mark has this great ability. I love this gospel. He has this great ability to weave great storytelling into his narrative of Jesus. What I mean by that is that this story here in Mark 4 is much more than just a rescue at sea. It's more than that. It's actually a rescue at sea when Jesus and his disciples are going to the other side. There's a purpose in his travel here. And something happens on their way. So in other words, Jesus and his disciples, they leave Capernaum, this this Jewish town in a Jewish province, and they're going to the other side, but the other side here isn't necessarily, it's not really across the street. They're going to a whole new place, a place they've not visited, a place filled with people who aren't like them, who don't look like them, who don't live like them, who aren't even of the same ethnicity. The other side in this story is the world of the Gentiles, the world on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's foreign, it's new, it might be dangerous, but it's certainly unknown. The people on the other side, they don't believe in God. They don't even know him. The people on the other side, they didn't know the promises of God. They didn't know or care about the prophecies of a coming Messiah. They had no need for law or sacrifices or atonement. So Jesus and his disciples traveled to a space and a place, now listen, considered sinful by the good Jewish people. If you weren't a Jewish person, if you weren't a Jewish law follower, You are a sinner. And that's where Jesus and his disciples were going. To what would probably be called hostile territory. Nothing comfortable on the other side. There's nothing safe on the other side. Jesus actually goes back and forth to the other side pretty regularly in this gospel. He wasn't afraid to leave the familiar world of his own Jewish people to visit the world of hostile, unfamiliar Gentiles. And you can write these down. You could find these references in these following passages. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Mark chapter 6, verse 32. And Mark chapter 6, verse 53. Mark just kind of puts these little nuggets in here. He just kind of sprinkles them, letting you know that Jesus did not mean to stay put. Mark is using these subtle cues here to tell you that Jesus was bound and determined to take grace to people who didn't even know it existed. But this time, in Mark chapter 4, this is his first time to do it. Even though it becomes a pattern, this is the first time. So let's Let's talk about this story for just a few minutes. What we read in Mark chapter 4 on your notes or in your Bible, it's probably an eyewitness account of this story. Now, a lot of the gospel stories were written remarks of careful historical research. We get a sense here, though, in Mark chapter 4, that Mark actually talked to someone who was there when it all happened. You can reference this on your notes. I'll show you this. Here's why we think this. Mark mentioned the exact time they sailed. 
There is an otherwise unnecessary reference to other boats in this story. Why is that there? What does it matter? It's there, though. There is a detailed reference of a boat being filled with water. I mentioned that. doesn't matter to the story. And there is the exact location where Jesus slept in one of the boats. So Mark probably wasn't with Jesus here, but he more than likely got this story directly from someone who was. Let's talk about the Sea of Galilee for a minute. I've never been there. Some of you have been there. But I understand that as far as bodies of water go, it's, it's relatively small. It's surrounded by high mountains. And storms were common in Jesus' time on the Sea of Galilee, so common that fishermen generally fished in the evening to avoid the worst storms that typically formed in the afternoon. I'm not really sure that matters, though, because a storm at night is the worst possible storm. doesn't matter. And even the seasoned fishermen with Jesus, who had seen storms their entire lives on the sea, they were scared to death. Yet Mark tells us something about Jesus here that's as much about Jesus' character as it was about his physical state in verse 38. This is a big one. Look at this. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Jesus was asleep. Did you know that this is the only time in any of the Gospels where Jesus is pictured as sleeping? It's the only time. Nowhere else. I mean, Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully human. He's exhausted. And even his family, if you go a chapter earlier in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, they knew of Jesus' exhaustion. It's actually written there that they went to stop him because he didn't even have enough time to eat. So in this story, in Mark chapter 4, when he wakes up, though, when the disciples finally wake him from his slumber, he says something with power. He commands something. He rebuked the wind, and he rebuked the waves as if they were humans or some sort of entity. Now, I want, I, want, I want you to see something here. He didn't tell them to stop. He told them to be quiet. There's a big difference in both of those. Language matters. Jesus wasn't merely talking to the natural elements here, but rather he was talking to what controlled these elements. And instead of intermittent ripples from the ending of the storm, the sea calmed, Immediately, Jesus had control over what controlled the weather. Pretty amazing. And if we stopped here, we're going to find a pretty compelling story because our hero saves the day. And isn't that enough, right? We, we, we want it to be enough because for us in times of trials and storms and crises, oh, we like this story. We like it. We like a savior who can calm the metaphorical storms in our lives who can calm the metaphorical seas and the metaphorical winds. We want a Savior who re rebukes what produces those storms and seas and winds in our lives. And we worship that Savior. But, and here's the same, this is what happens. It happens to me too. In the same breath that we, with the same breath that we worship Jesus, we consider ourselves lucky. Lucky if the tides turn, as if luck and Jesus are the same thing. And then if we're really going to be honest, because I like being honest, we have a hard time reconciling how our good fortune sometimes aligns with those who receive devastating losses. 
So we're somewhat confused sometimes. It's like Jesus is a, is a lamp. He's a genie in a lamp, and, and we rub it to see what we can get out of it. So it's really important here, incredibly important, that we remove this story from its metaphorical meaning and we place it in its intended context. And when we do this, we're going to find that the intention of this story is much better than what we've told ourselves. So here's what's really happening here. And we got to pay attention to this. This storm comes at a critical moment in this gospel. It comes at the very first time that Jesus goes to an area ignorant of the Messiah. It comes the very first time Jesus goes to a location filled with Gentiles, to people who until this moment had no hope of becoming children of God. And on his way to that place, to the other side, he and his disciples are threatened with a blood-curling, stress-inducing storm. It's a storm that threatens their lives. And it gets us to our first point about going to the other side. Going to the other side brings attack. It brings attack. This storm in this gospel, in this place, is that attack. This storm is meant to keep grace at the door of the ungrateful and to keep grace from the door of the most needful. This storm was the very extension of evil. It is the arm, so right there, it's the arm of a would-be murderer. I don't want us to underestimate how important the other side really is. It's darkness is going to be defended at all costs. Even if the defense of that darkness threatens your life or the lives of those you love. The liberation of the other side is a victory the enemy does not want us to claim. And the enemy, you got to listen to this, it's right here in the book. The enemy will kill us to keep that from happening. We got to be careful got to be careful because Jesus not only rebuked the wind and the waves in this moment, he also rebuked his own disciples in verse 40. Look at this. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus rebuked them not because they were afraid of the storm, but because they didn't expect it in the first place. The storm will come when you venture to the other side for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we need to know that. Going to the other side brings an attack. But there's something else we learn about the gospel here from this story. And this is it. Going to the other side also brings strength. But not yours. But not yours. I want you to notice something incredibly important here in this story. Jesus, even though he could have, did not stop the storm from hitting the disciples. He didn't stop it. And by not stopping it, he surely authorized it. 
Listen to this. This storm did not happen without Jesus's permission. So you got to ask, why did he allow it in the first place then? What's going on here? If he didn't stop it, if he didn't prevent it, if he didn't keep it from happening, why did he allow it? Well, this is why. He allowed it to show that his will is stronger than the forces of evil that oppose him. Not once was he scared, not once was he frightened, not once was he worried. I want you to listen to this. The strength that Jesus provides is miraculous. It's unexplainable, but it's also on time. There is value on the other side. People on the other side need Jesus. The people on the other side of your hallway, on the other side of your office, of your neighborhood, of your family, of this city, of this nation, people on the other side of the world need Jesus. Look, we are in missions month. This is a big month for us. And we're going to hear over the course of this month how much of the work that has been done for the gospel. But we're also going to hear about the work that is yet to be done on the other side. And I want you to know something. You can be a part of this work. You can be. You can be. And I want you to be aware of something. You're going to be attacked the minute you go. It's going to happen. Storms will come. But be encouraged because you will see the glory of Jesus through those storms. I want you to listen to the words of Paul as we close here and how he described going to the other side. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Be encouraged. You can go to the other side because of the faithfulness of Jesus. You can do it.